You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Welcome to this week's edition of SpyCast. This week we're looking at how spies think. And we're doing so with Sir David Omand. So I'm really pleased that I got the opportunity to speak to David because a professor at my graduate school said that he was the smartest person whom he had ever met. And he had met a lot of smart people. He'd done his PhD at Cambridge. Another endorsement for Sir David comes from Roderick Braithwaite. So Sir Roderick was the last British ambassador to the former Soviet Union. And he said that there is no one more qualified to speak about British intelligence than David Oman. In uh, 1969, I graduated from Cambridge University. Um, I decided not to pursue uh, an academic career with a, getting a doctorate. Um, I didn't join the Treasury, which was another option that was open to me as an economist. And I went off to work for GCHQ, the British uh, Signals Intelligence and uh, today Cyber Security Establishment, uh, which involved sitting the hardest examination I've ever sat in my life. Uh, they let me in, to my slight surprise, and uh, I started, you know, my training as an intelligence analyst and as a fast streamer in in, in GCHQ. Later on, I worked in the Ministry of Defence uh, for really many, quite a few years. I was the private secretary to a number of uh, secretaries of state for defence including during the Falklands War, um, I was surprised uh, at, to be asked to go back to GCHQ at the end of the Cold War to be director. And you know, they were looking for somebody who could reorient the department, both to new customers following the end of the Cold War, but also to take account of the coming digital age, the Tosame of digital technology, which was threatening to render obsolete so much of what had been done so brilliantly during the Cold War with analog radio systems and HF Morse and all these other things. So I ended up in GCHQ as the director at a crucial time for the intelligence world. Um, I was then sort of headhunted to go and run the Home Office, our uh, uh, Homeland Security Department, essentially, the Home Department. Uh, and after three years of that, uh, I ended up in the Cabinet Office, at the centre of government, as the first UK security and intelligence coordinator 
responsible to the prime minister for the professional health of the intelligence community, sort of DNI role if in American terms, and for the construction of the UK's counterterrorism strategy, which is more of a homeland security role. So it was a mixture of things. So looking back on the career, there's both presence in the intelligence community. I spent seven years as a member of the Joint Intelligence Committee, but also active work as a policymaker in government. And that, I think, is maybe one of the things that makes people like Sir Roderick Braithwaite sort of think that I know a lot about it because I've been on both sides. And there aren't that many people who have successfully moved backwards and forwards between the professional intelligence world and the policy world. We try to keep them separate. We don't want policy considerations to pollute the impartiality of intelligence analysis. But if you've been on both sides, you get a very, you know, a very, uh, uh, I think, helpful view of the interactions and how you get the two to work successfully together. And that's really one of the things I've been trying to cover in my new book. So, so the book has a fascinating title, How Spies Think. Could you just set out the... Anyway, I'm holding up the cover so you can see what it looks like in the bookshops. Uh, I look forward to getting a, a hard copy at the minute. I've had to make do with the audiobook and a PDF. Oh. Um, yeah. um, I was wondering if you could just set the stall out for us. What did you set out to do and, and, and how, did you, how did you do it? Well, I started work on this book and started thinking about it really after the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom and then the experience of the 2016 US presidential election and seeing the way in which these great events were reflected through social media and watching the rising tide of half-truths, distortions, some downright lies, some of which came from Russia, some from elsewhere, um, that was seeking to persuade people of what they should think and feel and want, and essentially aiming at dividing, uh, you know, widening divisions in society and setting us at each other's throats. And, you know, I'm not naive. I know that politics is a contact sport. It can be pretty brutal. The public has always aimed off for exaggerated claims by politicians and a bit of political swagger. That's part of the game, uh, as is personal rivalries and, and, and competition between politicians. But we've never before had to suffer politicians uh, and leaders in society who begin to deny the very nature of the truth. Uh, the Rand Corporation wrote a report about this uh, a year or so back, and they called it the spread of truth decay. So we have people for whom respecting the truth is no longer as important as creating the right emotional impact. And that, of course, is how social media works. It works on impact. It works on clicks per minute. And for too many people uh, getting their information through social media, you know, they would see something and they'd say, I would like that to be true. And that kind of morphs with constant repetition on social media into it might be true. And that slides too easily into it's as good as true. And we've seen this in the US. We've seen a bit of this in the recent election, but we certainly saw it in, in, in 2016. We saw it in the British Brexit referendum. And it has become a feature of political life, taken to the kind of extremes which we're beginning to see where foreign state, Russia, actively uses this phenomena to interfere then it's very dangerous for democracy. So I thought I'm going to write a book. It's a call to arms in favor of rationality, of rational analysis. Uh, and I wanted to write it in such a way that anyone reading it would not read it just as a textbook on 
intelligence community business, but would actually say, this applies to my personal life, my business life as well. Because the way spies think, as the title says, the way intelligence analysts work is as applicable to any decision we have to take. Uh, if you decide you want to live somewhere else, you want to change where you live or apply for a different job, or even do you decide whether you're going to wear a mask, a COVID mask in the street this afternoon? These decisions, you have to hold two different kinds of thought in your mind at the same time. One is the rational, dispassionate analysis of the facts of the case and the, what what it is you're facing, why you have to take this decision. But the other part is emotional. Um, it's about what I, do I hope to get out of this decision? Or what do I fear that I think this decision might allow me to avoid? And both are necessary. But what I observed uh, recently is that the emotional side is leaching into and rational side. In government, we take huge care to separate these two out. So you have uh, national intelligence estimates coming out of the US NIC, you have estimates coming out of the British Joint Intelligence Committee, you have professional analysis on COVID, you have scientists and doctors producing impartial advice. And then on the other hand, you have the customers for that analysis, who are passionate. They have political beliefs, they have democratic mandates, uh, they have to have the final say as to what happens. But if you allow just you know, the emotional impact side to dominate, and you're not taking sufficient care of the rational analysis, or even worse, the rational analysis is beginning to be contaminated by the, uh, the other side, the passionate side, then you can get into quite a lot of trouble. So that's really why I set out in the book, this is a good way, the first part of the book, this is a good way of thinking about the outputs from intelligence, not necessarily secret intelligence, but our native wit, our own intelligence. These are the four outputs, as I put it. Then the second part of the book is an analysis of how you can get it wrong how you can slip into errors of thinking, and there's plenty of historical evidence that that happens. And then the third part of the book is, let's use that learning to keep ourselves safe online, to improve the way we build long-term partnerships, and indeed to improve the outcomes of the negotiations, which we all have to engage in from time to time. I think that it's it's really interesting that you've almost uh, you're almost like working on a vaccine for a pandemic of uh, a pandemic of mistruths, half truths, uh, disinformation, misinformation. Uh, so I think that the remedy is really important. But do we have any? Do you have a sense of? any understanding of where this pandemic came from? Like, what's what's going on? Is it, is it the information revolution? Is it broader societal changes? Um, I want to dig into the book a little bit more, but I just wondered if you thought a bit about where the, yeah, where the malady came from. Yeah, the sort of two main drivers. One is the business model of the internet. And don't get me wrong, the internet is a wonderful thing, as is social media. Where would we be with COVID if we couldn't keep in touch with people using you know, Zoom and Teams and all the rest of it? So our economic and social health in the future depends entirely on having a functioning, working, secure internet. Absolutely no doubt about that. It's a great, great thing. And we'll find in the global south that there are billions of new users over the next 10 years. Um, and that is going to revolutionize economic and social development. So it's a great thing, but it does have this dark side. And quite inadvertently, nobody planned it this way, but the business model of the internet that pays 
for the structures that pays for the free at the point of use service when you click and you get an immediate answer to your question and it's free you don't have to pay for it it's paid for by the advertising so uh, this enormously sophisticated mechanism has been set up where auctions take place within a thousandth of a second to match who the machines think you are your income level, your socioeconomic level, your browsing history, your interests, what you purchased in the past, all the data points about you to match that to what the advertiser says, this is the audience I want to reach for my product or my service. And in a thousandth of a second, the auction houses uh, produce a result, a price is settled for the advertisement and before it's loaded on your web browser, after you've typed in the URL, before it's loaded, up come the advertisements for you. I mean, this is when you step back and think about it, a truly stonking achievement. I mean, it is an amazing achievement that this is even possible. But what it does do, because of the way it's structured, is it gives some impact because it's clicks per minute that is the that's the medium as it were of, of transaction that's the money is cl clicks per minute and the more outrageous the material the more clicks and you know there are plenty of case stories around of how people have exploited this to make a little bit of money out of fake news videos and cat videos and all the rest of it which is fine but what it does do uh, is it emphasizes the emotional over the rational because the impact of what you're seeing is what registers first and foremost and we get a little bit of this with certainly in the in the united kingdom we get briefings on covid19 from government spokesmen indeed from the prime minister and up flashes a graph showing number of cases or number of hospital admissions or numbers of deaths uh, you probably don't have time to look at the scale, even if the scale is shown on the chart. It may not show up on your television. All you see is the line going up and then the voiceover from the prime minister or whoever saying uh, more and more cases. Are, you know, we need to we need to have further lockdowns or take further measures. So it's that emotional and visual impact. Now. In many cases, that's fine, It's particularly if it's entertaining or if it's you have the opportunity to really examine it. But if all it's doing is creating that initial framing, as I call it in the book, of the subsequent discussion, you've already had put in your mind a frame within which the debate will take place. And every television producer knows that. How do you introduce a a news item what music do you play what little clip do you show before you have the interview with uh, some notable person it's it, it's framing and it's a well understood psychological technique but that's just one of the ways in which to answer your first question the uh, business model of the internet itself encourages this and then of course you've got tweets and retweets you can have automated bots that will then amplify messages. Users are allowed to set their preferences. So you create for yourself the filter bubble that only lets in information that's more likely to agree with your prejudices um, than anything else. And gradually we get isolated. The other factor is our very human vulnerability when we're on the internet and again there's quite a lot of research showing that uh, uh, being on the internet and particularly the anonymity that goes with the internet encourages certain kinds of disinhibition certain kinds of uh, behavior and you say things even in emails that you would never dream of saying to somebody's face uh, and uh, this is one of the reasons why people like the Russians steal emails, because they know perfectly well that on emails, people will have expressed opinions that they never intended to be made public 
So you steal them and weaponize them. And that was a technique implied against the Democratic National Convention uh, Committee um, in the 2016 election and against uh, President Macron's en marche party in France, steal their emails and then tweak them a little bit to emphasize some of them and then release them uh, for, for effect. So the combination of sort of that psychological vulnerability with the inherent hardwiring of the way the internet works produces, I think, quite a toxic combination. So you're absolutely right. Uh, we've got to start learning to live with this safely. I would start in schools teaching the kids critical thinking, using internet material and coaching them so that they realize that it's a terrible mistake to retweet stuff without checking out you know, what, it is, what really it is. Don't believe everything you see on the internet when a friendly appearing individual who seems to be you know a, a a young person of your own age is making contact it could be you know it could be an extremely dangerous <laughs> individual trying to find people to groom for child abuse uh, and you know we need without frightening children we do need to take them through critical thinking uh, because it is different from the sort of thinking which you apply to reading news, old-fashioned newspapers, which uh, indeed watching old-fashioned television, and that's not how the upcoming generation get their information. They get it from social media. And help us understand how spies do think. So for people that have never been involved in, it, in intelligence, Put those put those lenses on people that have never worn them themselves professionally. How how is a spy thinking about the world? How are they dealing with all the phenomena that's coming in on a daily yeah. basis? Okay, well, the simplest way I've found to think about it, and what this is what I put in the book, and I've got an acronym for it because you need to have an acronym, which is C's, which you're what you're trying to do. You're trying to see the world clearly. So S-E-E-S. -E and the first S is situational awareness, facts on the ground or facts on cyber in cyberspace. Do you know what is actually happening? Uh, how reliable is the information that you're gathering and pulling together to take a decision? And let's catch this in terms of you have a decision, to, a big decision to make. Um, so situ I, do you really understand the situation that's facing you, the choices that are open, um, the uh, facts on the ground? Um, my first lesson in intelligence is that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, incomplete, and it's sometimes wrong. And it, that is true of all life. You can never really know everything, and you'll never know as much as you perhaps ought to know before you take a decision, but some decisions won't wait and you have to take them. So the first step is trying to ground yourself in some evidence that will stand up to scrutiny. And if you're an intelligence officer, you know that there are some adversaries out there who are feeding in data points that are fake. They're trying deliberately trying to mislead you. And indeed in political life, there are some who are exaggerating and I say pushing in material. So you've got to be careful about your situational awareness. But with patience and care, I've seen the analysts really come to, you know, they put together the pieces of, they've got the pieces of the jigsaw, if you like. But there's a crucial, crucial mistake that people make, which is jumping from, well, I've seen the facts on the ground. Now I know what's going on. And the answer is you don't because you have to explain why things are the way they are, appear to be. Why did you see that evidence and not some other evidence? Um, I use a little story in the book to illustrate this. So let's imagine you've got a court and there's a young man uh, uh, charged with throwing a bottle at a police patrol and his fingerprints are on the fragments of the bottle. 
So the prosecution say, clear-cut case, it's his fingerprints, no doubt about it, uh, send him down. The defense lawyer will say, well, hang on a minute, the mob came past his house, they picked the bottle out of his recycling bin, of course it had his fingerprints on it, and then they threw it. Now, which of these versions of reality is the truth? That's what the court or jury has to decide. But what it illustrates is it's the same fact, the same fingerprint, but it's capable of two very different interpretations. And in international affairs, when uh, one nation uh, appears to be doing something quite aggressive towards a neighbor, is that deliberate? Did they intend that? Uh, so answering questions about why and how, whereas your situational awareness, it's answering questions about what, when, and where, basic stuff. Much harder to get to the roots of why is that happening. But if you've got a decent explanation and some good, uh, well-grounded evidence, you can move on to the holy grail of intelligence work, which is estimation. You can tell your customers how things are going to pan out. And you can begin to model. And we see this with COVID. So the experts have data on hospital admissions and cases and so on. They now have increasingly good explanations about how the virus is communicated between one group and another or one person and another. You can put those together, make some assumptions about public behavior, and then you can begin to model if we instituted a lockdown, if we said it was compulsory to use masks at public gatherings, what would be the effect? And that's where you're beginning to model uh, the real world effect um, on, 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 on assumptions. So the third of my sort of outputs that an analyst can give a customer is uh, uh, that estimation of how things might work. It's not a prediction, it's not a crystal ball, it's probably caveated with on, you know, we probably will see this or that. Or it might be heavily dependent on assumptions, on the assumption that we expect there to be the following consequence. And we can all do that. Um, but then those three together, situational awareness, explanation and estimation. Whilst you're busy with your head down, trying to work all that out, something creeps up behind you and hits you on the back of the head you weren't expecting. So the fourth output that the intelligence community can give a customer, or indeed you can give yourself by thinking ahead, is what I call strategic notice. And these are the kind of black swans. These are the, well, it's probably won't happen, but if it did, it would be catastrophic. That's what causes us to take out insurance, fire insurance on our house, if you have a house, or property insurance on our new iPhone or whatever. Because if it gets stolen and you haven't got insurance, you're, it's a big loss. And you can actually hedge your bets, you can pay for insurance uh, and live more with a greater degree of confidence. And that's because you've got strategic notice that that kind of theft is pretty common. Uh, and in society, one of those black swans was the pandemic, was the coronavirus pandemic. Impossible to estimate in advance exactly what the characteristics of a brand new disease would be that's just jumped the species barrier. But the idea of there being uh, some kind of viral infection of the coronavirus type, everybody in the in government has known for years that that is likely at some point to appear. And we had it a bit with SARS. You get different variants of the flu. H5N1 was the favorite for a long time that if that appears, it's gonna be pretty serious. So we knew in advance that that was one of those possibilities. And then the question for the policymaker is how much do you invest 
in protect stockpiles of protective equipment? Do you invest with the pharmaceutical companies in fast tracking vaccines so that they're all ready to fast track a vaccine? Do you have track and trace arrangements? Uh, the app that was created. Uh, it would have been nice if some, if that, some of that work had been done in advance of the pandemic arriving and some of the arguments over the uh, what the the personal data that the app might use. And you have those arguments in peacetime, as it were, before you're in crisis. So those four components that make up C's, situational awareness, uh, explanation, estimation, and strategic notice form my model. of Those are the outputs that the brain of an analyst, or indeed your own brain, can provide you when you come to decide, where am I going to live? And all sorts of questions pop up about the, where are the children going to go to school and uh, what's the neighborhood like and do I have access to parks and anyway, why do I want to move out to the city or move into the city? Um, and that's the kind of emotional part. And somehow, as I say, you have to connect your hopes and desires and fears which are very genuine, and that's why you're going to make the decision with the rational analysis of what is this new neighborhood really like? Have I checked out the facts on the ground? Will there be places in a school for the kids and so on? And you bring those two uh, together. Uh, so that's what a professional analyst is good at. Uh, and with luck, if you have a the final decision makers, it doesn't really matter if they're presidents or prime ministers or military commanders or police officers, if whoever, policy makers, whoever has to take those decisions has been trained in these are the outputs of analysis that I can use. And these are all the traps I could fall into, uh, the cognitive biases and uh, obsessional thinking and so on. And once you've exposed all that and you've trained people, you're going to get better decisions. We'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Is thinking like a spy more science or more art or is there a blend of both? I, you know, it has to be a blend of both. I mean, there are some specialist roles within the intelligence community, which are science, which are pretty hard-edged science or, math or advanced mathematics. But if you're talking about the intelligence officers who are um, analyzing the, the intelligence, if you're looking at the ways in which they organize the collection of information and so on, and the management of the community, you need both. You need a very good humanistic training. Um, you don't want people in intelligence communities who haven't got a sense of restraint because you're using the power of the state to do very unusual things, to steal secrets from other people. Uh, to uh, coerce people by you know, recruiting them to help you with information and thus betray the countries whose services they may be in. That's the business, that's human intelligence, that's recruiting agents. Um, and they have to betray their loyalty for you. And therefore you have to convince them that's worth it. 
Um, so that kind of very unusual activity, which takes place inevitably in secret intelligence, you want that to be done by people who have a good humanistic sense uh, of restraint. Um, the last thing an certainly a British intelligence agency would want is to employ somebody who has no ethical sense because they're actually quite dangerous and you can't rely on them being sensible when and that you, they will end up doing things that will bring some shame on the organization and sadly from time to time around the world you can see this happening to intelligence agencies so on the other hand we're in a digital age personal informi information is all digitized. If you want to know about an individual, be they a narcotics trafficker or a terrorist or a people smuggler or a dictator, where do you look? You know, you look on the internet, you look on social media, uh, you look for the information which we all give out all the time as we live in the digital age. So you have to have some understanding of that. And certainly when it comes to analysis, Bayesian inference, doesn't matter if you call it that or, or not, I mean, it's uh, without getting technical, that is the way in which big data is managed. That is the way in which you are inferring from large quantities of data that you are interrogating with some smart algorithm to come out with a small amount of information which may be relevant to your particular inquiry. And of course, the essence of Bayesian thinking is that when new evidence arrives, you use that methodical way of thinking to alter your degree of belief in your previous proposition. So you think, uh, well, take the Cuban Missile Crisis, the analysts in the Pentagon uh, thought that it was unthinkable that the Soviet Union would try and smuggle nuclear weapons onto Cuba. That was their prior proposition. Then along comes some aerial photography showing strange coffin-like shapes on, on trucks and so on, but unidentified. Uh, then you have the uh, spy Penkovsky providing MI6, the British Intelligence Service, and the CIA with invaluable insights into how the Soviet Union set up missile bases. You put that it all together and suddenly what appears to be there is indeed the first stages of the construction of medium range missiles that would hold Washington at risk from Cuba. Um, and thankfully the intelligence also indicated that from what could be seen, they weren't yet operational. And that gave President Kennedy just enough time to get the blockade of Cuba organized and to challenge President Khrushchev. And since Khrushchev's whole thinking had been, we'll smuggle them in, get them operational, and then there's nothing they can do about it because it's they're facing a fait accompli, um, it was either go to World War Three or back down. And Kennedy very sensibly gave him a ladder to climb back down. The removal of the US Thor missiles in Turkey uh, privately agreed um, so that he could back down uh, and save his face vis-a-vis -vis his generals. Khrushchev could back down. Uh, and the world was saved from World War Three. That could have been a confrontation that got extremely nasty. But that kind of way of thinking about uh, intelligence but being prepared to adjust your estimates in the light of new information if you like that's that's the secret to bayesian thinking and you've got some wonderful examples in the book but i wondered if you could zero in on one or two of your favorites um it wasn't written as a memoir and uh, the examples i pick i've deliberately picked rather more from the policy world that I've been in than the straight intelligence world because I don't intend ever to reveal any intelligence secrets. Um, but let me take, just give you an example, which is 1982. I was the principal private secretary to the then defense secretary, uh, John Lott. Uh, um, 
um, some crisis was blowing up over the Falkland Islands. And John and I were working in the House of Commons in Westminster on a speech he was going to give. Uh, when a runner arrived from Whitehall with a locked pouch, and in it were these folders, three intercepts from GCHQ, my old department, uh, intercepts of Argentine naval communications that they had very cleverly deciphered. And when you read these, a covert beach reconnaissance of the capital of the Falkland Islands, uh, a task force had set sail, destination not known, but another intercept, um, uh, that there was a senior person on board. You put all this together and it was pretty evident that by the end of the week, a task force would have arrived, an invasion force would have arrived on the Falkland Islands, and there was nothing on the Falkland Islands to stop them, but a company of Royal Marines who couldn't put up any serious resistance, too few people. So by the end of the week, uh, uh, we would have lost the Falkland Islands. So uh, John and I, we looked at each other and said, this is very serious. The Prime Minister must be told at once. So we dashed down the corridor on the House of Commons, burst in on Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister, said, Prime Minister, I said, you better look at this. And she read them and she looked up and she said, this is very serious, isn't it? And I, there's only one thing you can say, which is yes, Prime Minister. Um, by the end of the week, we'll have lost the Falklands and there's nothing because it's so far away you can do in the time available. Um, and that allowed just her just enough time to agree to put together a naval task force to dispatch to the South Atlantic. And when the invasion took place, there was a very, very angry debate in the House of Commons on the following day on the Saturday. She was able to stand up and announce, we've already got a task force together it will be sailing imminently for the South Atlantic. You know, we're determined, we're taking action. And that almost certainly saved her premiership um, because people were extremely angry. But I'll never forget that night um, from her room in the House of Commons, ringing up the duty commander in the uh, Ministry of Defence with a historic instruction from the Prime Minister and the First Sea Lord, you know, ready the fleet for sea. So that was, a, but what that illustrated was in a sense, my model of intelligence. The situational awareness, GCHQ had managed to crack those ciphers and managed at the very last minute to pick up communications which showed what was about to happen. That gave, and the explanation of that was pretty straightforward. And my estimate of what was then going to happen was exactly right. By the end of the week, they'd be on the Falklands. So that uh, uh, saved her premiership. That was an intelligence success. But what was a failure was that it came as such a surprise. And when afterwards there were inquiries, we discovered there was strategic notice. The Joint Intelligence Committee had sent out a report saying that if the junta became convinced that the negotiations with Britain over the Falkland Islands were going nowhere, it was quite likely they'd take matters into their own hands. So that warning was there, yet government had not done anything. It would have been expensive, but a few hundred million pounds would have extended the runway to allow fast jets to land in a crisis and that would have been sufficient deterrent. As it was, the failure to act on strategic notice, it probably cost some three billion pounds, and sadly, a thousand lives on both sides um, to settle that dispute and to recover the islands uh, back to the United Kingdom, who, who uh, it, was, it was our territory. Uh, that you know a fascist junta had invaded, but it needn't have happened at all if the strategic notice had been heeded. So there's a sort of perfect encapsulation of some of these lessons about intelligence work. Uh, what was uh, 
there was a kind of magical thinking. It's quite a useful phrase, I find. Magical thinking on the part of the then government that it wasn't going to happen. And if it did happen, oh, well, the intelligence people will give us warning. But when you look at it coldly, it's completely impossible to guarantee that you know, a month in advance, you're going to get advance notice of that kind of decision. Um, and that British policy was based on that, on sand, that, that magical illusion that we don't need to worry because we'll get intelligence warning that will give us time to sail a submarine to the South Atlantic or a frigate or whatever it might be. So yeah, there we are. That's that's a little case study. And you mentioned Margaret Thatcher there. Was there a particular policymaker during your career who you thought they just get it, they understand the the limitations of intelligence, the strengths of intelligence? And is there also someone that you just thought this is this is hard work? They're just not getting it at all. I don't think it's about personality of prime ministers or foreign secretaries or whatever. It's more about what else is going on. And uh, it's in part, it's how much does the intelligence community push and, and warn on the Joint Intelligence uh, uh, Committee. Uh, you can find, you know, it's not enough to write a paper the same is true in the United States with national intelligence estimates. It's not enough to write a very elegant paper, well expressed, lots of evidence, and hope that somebody reads it. If you actually want to issue a warning, then it's like a shout to the political leadership saying, stop everything else you're doing. We're warning you something unpleasant is on its way. Uh, and that takes you know, a certain amount of courage to do that, because if you do it too often and you get it wrong, which is perfectly possible, then you get what's called the Cassandra syndrome after the princess of Troy who went round, you know, beware of uh, the, uh, you know, the gifts, the Trojan horse that, 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 that nobody believed her. And that was the downfall of Troy. So, you know, warners who overdo the shouting, crying wolf um, uh, get discredited. But sometimes you do have to say, uh, we, are, we are giving you a warning. There's an, another example I give in the book, a slightly different one, about the difficulties of trying to assess motivations. And that was... Uh, in 1995, at the time of the Bosnian War. And uh, General Mladic, uh, who was commander of the Bosnian Serb army, had occupied the UN safe area of Srebrenica and essentially massacred the male population. And his troops had behaved abominably to the civilian population that was sheltering there, supposedly under UN protection. and. The question was, uh, and I was on the Joint Intelligence Committee at the time, what's he going to do next? Is he going to continue uh, ethnic cleansing effectively? So I found myself uh, on an airplane heading on a secret mission to Belgrade, along with the commander in chief of the Royal Air Forces uh, Strike Command and our American and French opposite numbers on a secret visit to Mladic to both warn him that if he stepped out of line in relation to another UN safe area, the full might of US, British and French on his army. And secondly, to try and assess, would he accept that warning? Or was he going to continue to uh, defy the international community and the United Nations? And it was, I recounted in the book, it was, we, we agreed that the aviators would wear uh, aviator sunglasses and leather bomber jackets, look as menacing as possible, that we wouldn't accept the uh, hospitality we knew that General Mladic would offer us, you know, sweetmeats and slivovich, which indeed was set out in the table in the villa outside Belgrade where this meeting took place. And he got very angry. 
and he tore open his shirt and said to the, the, the air commanders, well, you might as well kill me now, but no foreign boot is going to desecrate the graves of my ancestors. And he then read to us from this handwritten book that he had, which he'd written, of the tribulations of the Serb people ever since the Battle of the Field of the Blackbirds in the 14th century, uh, when the Serbs were defeated by the Ottoman army. And as far as he was concerned, the Bosnian Muslim population were Turks, and they were had no place in his country. And he was very racist, very blunt in, in that. So when we flew back at the end of the day, it was very evident that his motivation was to ethnic cleansing, and he wasn't going to stop. And it was deep in his bones. Uh, and the only thing that would stop him would be a full-scale NATO intervention on the ground with Ameri American participation. Uh, and that's what happened. And that did indeed bring the civil war to an end. And Mladic is today languishing uh, in jail a life sentence for crimes against humanity from the international judgment from the international court. But it, again, it's an interesting example of how <coughs> there are crucial moments when you have to try and assess the motivation of an adversary. Um, and Mladic made it easier for us than he might have done. <laughs> but without actually personally meeting him, it might have been harder to read him, which is one, again, of the, the general lessons that well-educated, well-brought-up intelligence analysts sitting in a comfortable office in Washington or Whitehall in London may find it difficult to put themselves inside the mind of a tyrant um, and uh, not to make the mistake of kind of mirror imaging how they would react. And, you know, 1968, the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia to crush the reform movement, the intelligence analysts on both sides of the Atlantic said, no, the Soviet tanks will not roll across the border because uh, Moscow would, the international opprobrium, the international fuss there would be, they won't, it's not worth it for them. But actually that was a complete misreading of their determination to protect uh, the spread of uh, the Czech style reform into other Warsaw Pact countries. And they did indeed roll. At that very minute, I was driving a elderly Land Rover with some fellow students along the border between Hungary and Czechoslovakia, dodging in and out of Soviet tank columns. Uh, we didn't know whether they were going to cross over the border, and neither did the Joint Intelligence Committee in London, which made the wrong judgment call. Again, mirror imaging, saying the factors that will weigh heavily in Moscow are the same as the ones that would weigh heavily in London, Paris, Bonn, or uh, in those days, or, or Washington. We have the same sort of issue with President Putin today, uh, who may well judge risk of embarking on, say, digital subversive activities very differently from a Western government would judge the risk going the other way. So you mentioned the United States. Do American spies, for example, think differently than British spies? Well, what I'm describing really is the analytic art. When it's, you know, as you say, half art, half science. And that is common. So uh, 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 an American analyst working in the DNI would think in exactly the same way. They'd know the same cognitive traps they mustn't fall into. They've got the same history of successes on the one hand and some failures on the other. So, no, there's a very common thinking when it comes to uh, operations on the ground. Then, yes, I mean, the CIA has a large paramilitary arm that is engaged in activity of drone use, for example, that the British Secret Service doesn't really do. 
uh, it's much more concerned with covert intelligence gathering rather than creating action, although there's a bit of that, bit of that goes on. Both uh, are very good at back-channel diplomacy. So conducting negotiations or uh, opening discussions with parties that their governments wouldn't be prepared to admit they were talking to. And this, of course, is what happened classically in Northern Ireland, where the British intelligence community was making the first overtures to, and discussions with what government saw as a terrorist group. But that, of course, was the very beginnings of a peace process, which took years to come to fruition. But nonetheless, you know, that uh, uh, without that work by the uh, security service and the secret service working together, um, probably, you know, you wouldn't have been able to bring a peace process together without that kind of patient back channel diplomacy. And there are many examples in the United, for the United States of, again, back channel diplomacy, trying to find peaceful solutions to conflicts around the world. And you mentioned in the book consensual hallucination. And I wondered if you could just flesh out that con that concept a little bit more. Well, it's it's not my term. It's uh, Gibson's term from the original Necromancer novel. That sort of <laughs> the, it appears alongside the first ever use of the word cyberspace. Um, and the the cyberspace cowboys who in the novel are operating. So. But it is the way in which there's a kind of suspension of disbelief. It's what you get, you know, with a really good movie. And you sit in, if, particularly if you're in a movie theater and it's dark and you've got a nice big screen and the sound is perfect. It doesn't take very long to suspend belief that, you know, this is purely a manufactured image that you're seeing on a two dimensional screen but you're actually there with it. And that's a great skill of uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick or a great director like that to create that sense of illusion. But it happens very often when we're also on the screen, the small screen on the laptop, or you see it with games playing, particularly if you get a couple of, watch a couple of children competing against each other on a shooter and the degree of involvement and passion which there is they are they're there they're actually part of that virtual reality and you don't need the fancy virtual reality technology to do that even a relatively simple game with a couple of controllers can generate that sense of consensual hallucination so the extrapolation ends up admit it's a bit of an extrapolate stretch, is in political debate too, when you're uh, looking at violently expressed opinions, strongly expressed opinions, and you're, you're part of that group, um, you have this powerful sense of uh, this, uh, you've agreed to it, it's a consensual hallucination that you're part of this. Um, and, you know, that can have its downsides. With the, with the book, with how spies think, uh, is there like one lesson that's contained within that book that you wish you had when you were a young man taking the entrance exam for GCHQ? Well, it's difficult to pick. There are 10 lessons. I'm not going to read them out to you now. Buy the book and you can be educated. But the fifth lesson is the one I would pick. It's our own demons that are most likely to mislead us. So self-knowledge is really important if you're going to take good decisions. It's not just somebody else providing you with information and you having some ambitions. It's the self-knowledge of when you're overreaching yourself or when you're being swayed by points of view. And the reason you're being swayed is because of this emotional 
tug or pull, which may relate to past experiences. Um, who knows? But you'll only find that out by really understanding yourself. So it's the old uh, the oracle at Delphi in Greek mythology, you know, first know yourself. It's been great talking. Um, I will have to have to cut this off. We could go on for hours. It's it's, um, it's been really interesting having this conversation. Ab absolutely. Um, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. From one glass region to another. Um, cheers and thank you. Slanger. <laughs> Slanger. Right, bye. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.